You might not remember the first time you were introduced to kale, but Bo Mullermore does. Local farmer came up to me one day in my booth at the farmer's market and said, I'm going to introduce you to kale. So he had a booth full of a big, thick, leafy green that kind of looked like spinach on steroids. And he said, Bo, this is kale. Hey, I'm Kathy Irway. I'm a food blogger and cookbook author, and this is Why We Eat What We Eat, a new podcast from Blue Apron and Gimlet Creative. Today, we're talking about one of the biggest food trends of the last decade, kale. Today, most Americans have more choices when it comes to food than any other group of people in the history of the world. I mean, we are so lucky. We have such an abundance of options. We could even choose between Doritos and organic Doritos. So why do some people choose to drink Soylent or splurge at a Michelin star restaurant or spend hours mastering a recipe? On Why We Eat What We Eat, we take a look at the unseen forces that shape our eating habits. So there are a lot of reasons why we eat the foods we eat. We eat food because it's on the menu, or it's in the supermarket or the cafeteria. And we eat foods because they're easy or quick or cheap. We eat foods because they taste good. And sometimes we eat foods because we saw them on Instagram. So how does a food trend happen? What better way to find out than to analyze one that's happening right now? Okay. It's a sort of plant, very green, consumed probably by by rabbits or small woodland creatures. Um, it's a little bitter. Is this just grass? <laughs> Did you just put grass in my hand? Okay, this is this is definitely kale. It tastes like the best kind of kale. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like really excited about kale. Kale is the ultimate food trend. It came out of nowhere and it's suddenly everywhere. Recently, even McDonald's added kale to their menu. Ten years ago, kale was on 0.7% of menus, so less than 1% of menus. Um, and then it started to grow from there. And then kind of at around 2011 is when it started to jump a lot. Today, it's on one out of five menus. Mike Costio works at a firm called Data Central. They have special software that tracks where ingredients appear and on which menus. Then they use that data to predict food trends. They have this whole system. It's called the Menu Adoption Cycle. This summer, McDonald's rolled out the signature sriracha sandwich. It's their attempt to cash in on as many food trends as can fit on one patty, including kale. You might think McDonald's is a little late to the kale game, but Mike says they're right on time. Yeah, absolutely. So we say it usually takes about 10 to 12 years to move through the menu adoption cycle. Kale is kind of a perfect example of that. I don't think people know that this is how it works. I think they think that, you know, when it shows up on their McDonald's menu, it's, you know, somebody at McDonald's was like, okay, let's try kale, and then they put it on the menu. But it costs a ton of money to bring something to market. So there's a ton of research. There's a ton of surveying that goes into all this stuff. Um, I mean, people lose their jobs because foods, you know, fail when they're brought to a restaurant. So how did kale get so big that McDonald's put all that money and all that time into getting it on their menu? It's not like bacon or sriracha. They have their own unmistakable flavors. Compared to those, kale is kind of bland. It's not something I ever crave. 
That's David Sachs, the author of The Tastemakers, Why We're Crazy for Cupcakes, But Fed Up with Fondue. In his book, David tracked the rise of food trends, like kale. No one takes a bite of kale and says, oh, wow, this is incredible. I want to eat this every day. It's not the type of thing like, let's say, you know, that first cappuccino that someone has, where it's like, whoa, this is how you drink coffee. I think its appeals are more subtle. David says that usually when a food becomes a trend, it's because it's had something called a cupcake moment. Sometimes certain foods achieve a status beyond what their physical nutritional attributes are, and they become symbols. And so transform something edible into something bigger, into something that's that's cultural. In the same way that the cupcake came to me more than just a little cake, it came to be a symbol of things associated with sex in the city when uh, Carrie and Miranda were eating cupcakes in front of Magnolia. That one moment you can really pinpoint the switch of the cupcake from, you know, a child's birthday party food into something that was suddenly associated with women and power and fashion and sensuality. So kale isn't particularly flavorful, and it also didn't have a flashy cupcake moment, which is why we're so curious about it. One thing we do know is that it became a symbol of sophisticated eating at the same time that farm-to-table dining became trendy. It became, you know, as I like to say, the edible Prius or the edible Subaru. It's more than just an expression of kind of communal appetite. It is, um, again, a symbol of all sorts of ideas around class and uh, identity and the way that food plays into politics and, and all these other factors in society that goes beyond sort of taste and nutrition. Kale has become elitist in this bizarre way. Eve Tarot Paul is a food writer. It's not because it's, it's not accessible to everybody, mm-hmm. because really it does taste like cow feed <laughs> to a certain extent, right? It's a little chalky. It's bitter. Most people consider those kinds of flavor profiles to be um, for someone with uh, a more trained palate, if you will. And so in that way, it really is associated with food knowledge Mm -hmm. um, and sophistication, Mm -hmm. right? Like kale is the more sophisticated version of iceberg lettuce. In addition to writing about food, Eve is a millennial food culture consultant, which means she works with restaurants and celebrity chefs to help them tap into the millennial market. And even she doesn't know what made kale so special. It's amazing to see how kale has become kind of the staple in my diet, whereas maybe six, seven years ago, I I don't know that I knew what kale was in college. And I'm not really sure Mm -hmm. why (laughs) that one vegetable was anointed the vegetable. Prior to around 2011, the biggest buyer of kale was Pizza Hut, and that was for decor underneath um, their salad bar. Underneath the salad bar, so not part of the salad bar at all. exactly. It really was like the suburban doily, and now it's the centerpiece. Food trends, like most trends, come in cycles. The 70s and 80s were all about cutting animal fats and eating low-calorie foods with L-I-T-E in their names. Then in the late 90s, the Atkins diet ruled out carbs, so people started eating more protein. It only makes sense that the pendulum next swung to a vegetable. 
There are a lot of reasons why kale was the vegetable instead of, say, cabbage. It's nutritious, it's cheap, it's versatile to cook with, and it's easy to grow. It also lasts forever. Another reason is this guy. Well, hey, Kathy, good morning, happy Monday. Who turned the idea of kale into a fashion statement. I'm Robert Muller Moore, but everybody calls me Bo. Bo lives in Vermont, and back in 2001, he was spending his time screen printing pro-veggie t-shirts. T-shirts with slogans like... Organic, or let us be, or feel the beat. And selling them at his local farmer's market. One day, Bo says, a kale farmer walked up to his t-shirt booth with a request. Said, hey, I need a shirt that says eat more kale. And I said, well... What do you want your shirt to look like? He said, I'm the farmer, you're the artist, I don't care. So I went home, I laid down a piece of plastic, got a Sharpie marker, and I traced my fingers. I laid my finger down and made an E, laid it down beside and made an A, T, M O R E, K A L E, printed his shirts, got $45, delivered them to him at the farmer's market. Thought that'd be the end of the story. Next time I set up at the farmer's market, I, I laid out my t-shirts, the lettuce bee, the organic, the field beet, and people came into my booth, started ripping through the shirt, saying, these are okay, but where's the greatest shirt of all time? And I said, well, what shirt are you talking about? They said, the shirt that says, eat more kale. It wasn't long before almost all of the shirts that Bo sold said eat more kale. Bo decided it was time to go pro. So I wound up buying some round green bumper stickers that said eat more kale. And I started giving 15000 away free per year. If you do the math, Bo says, all those t-shirts and all those bumper stickers, that's a lot of free advertising for kale. And he thinks that just might have been what made kale cool. You know, I want to take a little bit of credit for it because... I'm going to argue that 15,000 free bumper stickers on the backs of Priuses and Volvos from Boston to Austin to Berkeley, I wouldn't say it subliminal, but maybe guerrilla advertising. At the same time that Bo was giving away bumper stickers, the food movement started to take hold. The number of farmers markets grew. Books like Fast Food Nation and The Omnivore's Dilemma became bestsellers people bought more and more sustainable and local produce. Americans started to care a lot more about what they were eating and where it was coming from. And kale was just sitting there, garnishing salad bars and deli cases around the country. Never wilting, not even after 24 hours under the heat lamp of a Pizza Hut buffet. Over the next decade, kale's following slowly grew. It showed up on food blogs, and people started cooking it more at home. But then, kale hit the mainstream on April 22nd, 2011, when it appeared in the perfectly manicured hands of Gwyneth Paltrow on the daytime TV talk show, Ellen. Together, they made kale chips. Again, here's Eve Turo-Paul. She was all about wellness and superfoods. And then she goes on Ellen which is like the most mainstream channel you could possibly have for communicating to people. 
And unlike most of Gwyneth Paltrow's recommendations, which are like $300, right, (laughs) kale, you can just grow in your backyard. And so it was kind of after that you started to see reviews in like People magazine or Us magazine that's like stars who love kale. Kale now had multiple celebrity endorsements. It became aspirational. I think that really made it into a form of social currency. Right, right. Right, that that like suddenly this ubiquitous green, this accessible green, had somehow been boosted up in the hierarchy and became a status symbol of education and health and became associated with that kind of foodie wellness trend. With social media, liking kale, or even just liking a picture of kale, meant that you could be part of the cool crowd and participate in the food movement from the comfort of your smartphone. And then, kale went from cool to sexy when Beyoncé released her music video for the song 7-Eleven. For the first 37 seconds of the video, she dances, pantless, smiling at the camera, and wearing a gray sweatshirt that says KALE in all caps collegiate lettering. It was around this time, in full KALE frenzy, that Eve pitched a story to an online magazine about the phenomenon of KALE. But when she pitched it, she didn't expect it would turn into a full-blown Nancy Drew-style mystery. When I started to do my research, I found a number of different articles that kept mentioning this woman, Oberon Sinclair. Oberon Sinclair. If you Google her, Oberon is widely credited with the crafty guerrilla marketing behind the rise of kale. She runs a PR agency, and she represents a lot of, like, couture fashion lines, like Hermes. Oberon is the epitome of cool. She divides her time between London and New York. She's tall and lanky and wears impossibly hip jumpsuits. Her Facebook profile has a black-and-white photo of her smoking a cigarette, standing underneath a no-smoking sign. One of the companies that Oberon Sinclair represents is something called the American Kale Association. The American Kale Association. So Eve reached out to Oberon via email to ask about her work with them as a client. I asked Oberon, so how did you approach the kale assignment? And she said, my approach was relatively simple. I sought to educate consumers on the benefits of a product via guerrilla marketing. I literally put it on chalkboards around Manhattan and on the menus of cool restaurants, and the trend escalated from there. And then I asked, what was the moment during your work with Kale where you thought to yourself, this is working? And she writes, I would have to say Michelle Obama, including Kale during her Jimmy Fallon sketch, and Beyonce wearing a Kale sweatshirt in her music video were pretty epic moments. Eve thought she had her Rise of Kale story ready to publish. She just wanted to make one more call to a kale expert, Drew Ramsey, the author of Fifty Shades of Kale. And that's when he tipped her off that there was something suspicious about the American Kale Association. He said, have you talked to anyone at the American Kale Association? I'm not sure they exist. So it was like, dun, dun, dun. Eve was intrigued. She started looking for the phone number for the American Kale Association, but she couldn't find anything. Eve emailed her contact at Oberon's agency to see if they could help her get in touch. No response. Follow up again. Do you have a contact at the American Kale Association that I can reach out to? Crickets. 
Then I get a response saying that Oberon is in nonstop meetings and won't be able to get back to me. So then Eve called the top three kale farms in the U.S. to see if they might know how to get in touch. None of them had heard of the American Kale Association. By this time, Eve suspected a full-blown conspiracy, that there was no American Kale Association, and that Oberon had made it up. To me, when I think, who's the winner here? The only winner I see is Oberon Sinclair. And I don't think that she's responsible for the rise of kale. Why in the world would anyone want to take credit for the rise of a vegetable? Eve was going to go public with this bizarre American Kale Association story. So she tried one last time to get in touch with Oberon for an explanation. So... I pretty much said, listen, this is this is the story that I have. This is what I'm going to tell people. Do you have a response? And then I was sitting in my living room and working at my computer. And then suddenly my cell phone rings. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And I was just shocked to pick up the phone and hear, hi, this is Oberon Sinclair. And she says, I made up the American Kale Association. Eve says that, the way Oberon tells it, she only made up the American Kale Association because she wanted the world to know and love the vegetable. And she thought people would be skeptical if they saw a PR agency pushing it. Eve, on the other hand, has another theory. You do any Google search for the rise of kale, kale popularity, who's responsible, and you will find a number of articles that are saying this woman, this agency, is responsible for this. And as far as I can tell, she has benefited greatly from that PR for herself. She created an association, (laughs) right? And she created a fantastic story around it, right? Enough so that she has gotten press and credit. So this is a woman who is really good at what she does, clearly is really good at what she does. Today, Oberon's client list includes a bunch of food companies, coconut water, organic juices, and matcha tea products, who are all probably hoping to be as popular as kale someday. Oberon declined to give us an interview, and she didn't respond to any of our emails asking for a comment. We may never know the truth about why Oberon made up the American Kale Association. Hello? Hi. Hi. I'd like to get the kale burger. Do you have that? After this whole dramatic saga spanning nearly two decades, you might think that once kale shows up on the menu at McDonald's, it's over. But according to Mike Costio at Data Central, kale's going to stick around for a while. When did kale peak? Uh, so it hasn't peaked yet. I mean, we've been writing about kale for, you know, 10 years at this point. Uh, but you have to kind of get out of that bubble. You know, we live in a major metropolitan area. We have access to this type of stuff. But for a lot of people, you know, it's still moving into their restaurant scene. And for them, um, you know, it's still new for them. The really successful food trends are not things that dominate Instagram. This is David Sachs again, the author of The Tastemakers. 
They are the products that just, you know, end up in the back of your cupboard and in your fridge on a regular basis. So you don't even notice the bottle of Sriracha hot sauce there. It's just there with the ketchup and the mustard. You don't think about extra virgin olive oil coming in as this new trend that dominated the food industry, you know, from the 80s through the 90s. It's the oil in your kitchen. Um, I, I think the big food trends, the ones that have the longest lasting impact, are the ones that just fade into the background. What made kale such a huge trend? Well, first, kale grew on us for a few simple reasons. As a crop, it's hardy, abundant, and easy to grow. As a vegetable, it's healthy, cheap, and versatile. And kale hit at the perfect time. Eventually though, celebrities and fast food restaurants won't try to cash in on kale's appeal. People won't bother taking credit for its rise. Kale will just be a regular old grocery store staple, like apples or a bag of carrots but at least it graduated from decorating the deli counter. We'll know kale has arrived when we finally stop talking about it. Why We Eat What We Eat is a podcast from Blue Apron and Gimlet Creative. This episode was produced by Matt Schultz, Francis Harlow, Rachel Ward, Abby Rizika, and Jorge Estrada, with production help from Julia Botero and Tom Cody. Creative direction from Nazanin Rafsanjani. We were edited by Wendy Dorr and mixed by Zach Schmidt and Sam Baer. Special thanks to Phil Lempert, Julia Sherman, and Haley Shaw. Coming up next week on Why We Eat What We Eat, Picky Eaters. Okay, so wait. So when was the last time you ate a vegetable? Like intentionally? Uh, because sometimes there are vegetables and things and you don't realize. We all know kids can be picky, but what's it like being an adult whose favorite foods come out of a vending machine? That's coming up next week on Why We Eat What We Eat. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, subscribe and give us a review. It really helps people discover the show. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you think with the hashtag why we eat. Thanks for listening and see you next week.